Today, the first manuscript about the work in Finland has been officially accepted. There's a little button I can press on Zoom, but nobody would hear it in our, our podcast world, so I won't press it. That's it okay. does a little clap. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, super, super excited. It was a pretty... It's, it was one of those review experiences that was like everything was positive, constructive criticism. And Whoa. there, there, there was like, no jerky reviewers? Not, and not even a single jerky comment within the reviews. Whoa. This is now the second time this has happened. Uh, it's happened once with uh, an American anthropologist piece I have coming out soonish, I think. And now this, where it's just like everything was positive and very constructive and helpful. So I don't know if this is a, a trend. It's not a trend. It's not a trend. This was not true for the Science on Tap research paper that I did with uh, Patricia Howley because there was definitely one reviewer who just like, just didn't get it (laughs) very clearly. And the other reviewer was like, this is fantastic. Here are like three minor things you should change. And the other one's like, well, in the physics world, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, we should totally start this show so we can bring on our like super famous guest today. Yeah, we should. Who are we talking to? <laughs> we are talking to Dr. I'm just kidding. Dr. Barry Bogan, who is a, a titan in the human biology world. You know, he's my un- my academic uncle. You know, that's a when you when you had emailed that and, and, and put that in the questions, I was like, huh. I hadn't I guess maybe I have, but I hadn't really considered like the extended academic family of like uncles mm. and cousins. I had brought it up with Sam Erlocker because he and I are kind of like siblings. Well, you know, it's my turn. Most everybody is from Michigan and traces their self back to a lot of times to Hooten or, you know, some of these figures who just uh, Sherry Washburn. You know, they train so many people. And when uh, I teach introduction to BioAnth, you know, this is one of the things that we talk about. And fortunately, I'm blanking out on the, the guy's name who started it, sorry, who did the academic phylogeny for biological anthropology, formerly physical anthropology. I check up on that every few years, right? Mm-hmm. But I've, I've long known that because I wanted to know my own, to Sir Krugman, who was a uh, a dental anthropologist and an early forensic anthropologist is Mm -hmm. none of which I do, but the interesting piece is among his students was Francis Johnston, Frank Johnston, who then trained, and I don't know, I don't remember if there was a person in between there, apologies (laughs) to everyone, but, um, but he then trained um, Lawrence Schell, who, who, you know, and we've interviewed here before and it was my advisor as well as I believe Ellen Demarath, Barry Bogan, and several other folks who are active in the Human Biology Association. So Mm -hmm. there are several folks who are senior members of our organization whose whose lineage I share. And I didn't know that for the longest time because it's not really something we ever talked about. Mm -hmm. And Albany isn't really, you know, like that's where I got my degree. We don't really think of it or think of some of these other schools in the same way we think of Michigan. So it kind of gets... It kind of gets lost. And in one way, I find it interesting when we think about the legacy of a place, it forces people to either, to, to, they, they sort of, it's something to live up to. But mm-hmm. if a place has no legacy, we have to establish our careers all by ourselves. And it's and much, I, much, much more difficult. Yeah. This I th- is becoming I think, a big deal. And I think that's, that's what Barry's done. I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, he's famous I'll say in our circles as an oxologist, someone who studies growth and development. And I never knew that we shared an academic ancestry until mm-hmm. well down the road. Certainly Larry never told me. 
even though I've been reading Barry's stuff since grad school, yeah. he's one of the foundational people that we read. No, it's absolutely true. And I'm so excited that he agreed to be on the show. Because, I, mean, I hate to say this, but you never know how, like, like I said, the big titans of this field are going to feel about doing a, a somewhat casual podcast. And I think it's really great to document these folks who have had such long careers that have impacted all of our research. I feel like, yeah. you know, almost every single human biologist has cited Bogan for something or another in their time. And so I always get a little excited that they're willing to share their time with us, I guess. It's true. And every time I bring a, a student, a new student in the meetings and they hear a name, they're like, that's Barry Bogan. <gasps> I, I read him. All a flutter. <laughs> and I'm like, I know. Would you like to meet him? And they're like, <gasps> I don't think I can. <laughs> and, and I think that's like, also... He also eats sandwiches. No, he doesn't. Oh, I don't know. But they don't breathe. They, they have no form of excrement. They don't eat. None of that. They're going to make me start coughing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. But yeah, I think that's the other really nice thing about when, you know, the big wigs come and onto this podcast is I think it does like humanize them especially for grad students and be like, yeah, they were grad students too at one, at one point and they're regular people and would probably be happy to talk about their work to you if you came up to them at a conference. We should put right on the list. What's it feel like to be a big wig? When that did you make... know you started wearing said big wig? I know, right? <laughs> this that's, is going to be that's... another loopy interview, isn't it? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's just a, sh I'm not going to ask that. That would be a sure way for them to not want to be on the show. Leave meeting. <laughs> Yes. So what Chris and I were talking about uh, in our little intro is that you've got a bunch of affiliations, but now you live in the UK after having done work in the US. Yeah. So maybe just give us all of your glorious affiliations and then we'll kind of dive into how you got to that point. Tell, tell us where you are and what you're up to. Yeah, well, I'm retired now. So I, I, um, I can claim all kinds of affiliations, but no one pays me. <laughs> oh. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for my U.S. stimulus. <laughs> Aren't we all? But I am retired from, officially retired from two universities. I retired in 2007 from University of Michigan, Dearborn. Oh, there is a University of Michigan connection. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, I was so. Yeah. This comes up in almost every we'll, show, Barry. We'll, we'll circle back around <laughs> to this in a second. Yeah, I was at University of Michigan Dearborn for 25 years, so I had enough time to officially retire. I didn't expect that, but somebody in the administration who was friendly with said, "You know, you could retire. You could be emeritus professor." So, emeritus professor from University of Michigan Dearborn. I really don't have any active connection with UM Dearborn at this mm. time. I, I do still have email <laughs> privileges from them <laughs> and I can go into the U UM library and hmm. use any of their facilities as well. And then I'm now emeritus professor from Loughborough University. Nobody knows where Loughborough is. Or how to pronounce it. Yeah, or how to pronounce it. Luga Baruga. People say <laughs> Luga Baruga. And in fact, in the summertime, maybe this summer if things calm down, there's a Lugaburuga Festival, which is really a book festival for children hmm. in the town. Nice. Loughborough is basically a university town. There's a couple of other employers, 3M Corporation, and there used to be a, a AstraZeneca pharma, a hmm. big pharma. 
But in the UK, all of Big Pharma has moved near, I think, Oxford or Cambridge. They built a research campus there. All the big companies have their facilities there now so that they can share with each other and share with uh, Oxford or Cambridge or whatever it is. Now, so Loughborough's got a really good human bio and exercise fizz. When I came here in 2007, it was a department of human sciences with human biology, biological psychology, and ergonomics. Mm. And we got on really well, I thought, for the most part. And then before an administrator like the provost, uh, the equivalent of a provost, retired, a few years later, he decided to sink departments and create schools. So from 20-some departments, he wanted to go to 11 or 12 schools. The only advantage I see to that is that schools have deans, and <laughs> deans get paid more money than department heads. <laughs> So, <laughs> it's just like I've never been a dean. I've never been a dean, you know. And uh, we got swallowed up by what was the Department of Sport and Exercise Science, and we became the School of Sport, Exercise, and Health Sciences. Mm -hmm. Sport is one of the four pillars of Loughborough University when they define their mission. So it's you know teaching, high quality teaching, uh, high quality research. Enterprise and sport are the four pillars. They dropped what I grew up with throughout my university life, which is service. Hmm. I said, what happened to service? They said, well, that's enterprise. I said, no, it's not. When I volunteer to do work for any group, that's not enterprise. I'm not out to make money. I'm out to volunteer, even if it's just reviewing, not just, if it's reviewing, you know, the work of colleagues, that's service. And they looked at me like I was, you know, from another planet and said, next question. So the sport, does that mean every faculty member has to participate in some form of organized athletic? No. no. So what does that mean for like <laughs> the, the four pillars yeah, for faculty? Definitely. I have published. I'm, I'm on, you can find my words. I won't tell you where, but you can find my words that <laughs> Sports science is entitled to do its basic thing, which is to build a better athlete, mm. if that's what they want to do. But otherwise, sports science is like military intelligence. You know, it, they're not doing sport and they're not doing science. Mm -hmm. Mostly they are doing elite athlete mm. enhancement, whatever it takes. And many of the things that they are touting today, in a year or so, they'll say, oh, that, you know, nobody does that anymore. That's stupid. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. Taking ice baths after training, like rugby or, you know, any, any really physical with some contact sport. The idea was that ice baths will raise interleukins, you know, and that raises, that raises immune response and repair of the body. So you'll repair yourself faster after a match or after training, if you take an ice bath. And I said, no, if you're raising these, these things that, that, that come into play when you're damaged, it must be because of the damage being done by the ice bath. Now they're taking hot baths, which I've always taken. The only reason I go to the gym to work out is so I can sit in the steam room afterwards. Well, as someone who, oh my gosh, there's so many threads right there. Kara just pointed at me because I love sitting in the hot sauna that before and after a good workout. But what I was going to say before that is being at the University of Alabama, I don't know what you're talking about in terms of building elite athletes. That must be some other universities. like Notre you know, Dame too. Think about that. 
the schools of sport have a few different kinds of faculty members. Over here, we don't use the word faculty for people. A faculty is a, a thing, and we call everyone staff mm. who works there anyway. So we have a few kinds of staff or faculty. Some were jocks who never quite made it. We've had some Olympic level athletes mm. who then, you know, they, they made it to the Olympics. That's amazing enough, but they didn't win gold, right? So they became forgotten. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from them. And it's, it's an amazing feat to make it to the Olympics and also to make it in academia. So there's a few people who did sport and they're more in the sport physiology side. Mm -hmm. Then we have sport philosophy, sport sociology, sport anthropology, mm -hmm. um, things like that, sport and business, sport, you know, economics. And those people are, they tend to be not athletic at all. <laughs> so, um, Chris, isn't Danny Longman over at yes. Westboro? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, he joined uh, us a year ago. Yeah. This, I mean, he and I have chatted a number of times given some yeah. of the stuff that I work on related to athletics and, uh, and him right. as well. And my guess is, no, Jay Stocks is no longer there, but they no, collaborate he... on a number of different things. Right, um, right. Yeah, I but feel yeah, like... Danny and I have... have talked a bit but we haven't really done anything together there's a french postdoc mm -hmm. who may you know would like to come to loughborough she wanted to work with me but i'm i can't really sponsor her because i don't have a, i'm not being paid but danny could sponsor her so that's it, it, you know when this craziness all yeah. ends she will come to loughborough we hope mm -hmm. it's all interesting but i wanted to, to give us some context so karen and i did what's probably maybe for you a rather embarrassing introduction. And, and so I just want to give you some context for what we talked about. And it's embarrassing, maybe, I don't know, uh, because you've been working, I mean, you, you've been in the Human Biology Association as long as either one of us and, and for a long time and are one of the preeminent uh, scholars in the world doing oxology or growth and development. And, you know, I read your work as a grad student and my my advisor, Larry Schell, and, and you went to grad yes. school together under yes. Frank Johnston. And so, yes. so I've, I've long known your work. Kara came out of University of Michigan. So we often joke mm -hmm. that Michigan is such a hub that almost everyone we interview has a link <laughs> and that I was finally going to get to interview someone in my lineage that she couldn't claim. And then you went and spoiled it because I, I didn't do my homework and see that you've been there for 25 <laughs> years. I, I, I worked at U of M Dearborn. I didn't go to Michigan. Okay. Well, so but I did as as a grad student and and recent postdoc. I did play poker with the Michigan group <laughs> at the enough. meeting in the, in the old days when Ro Roberto Frisancho yes. and uh, and Baker, <laughs> uh, Paul Baker, organized poker games. We'll claim you. We'll claim you as a Michigan Wolverine. That's enough. So so that's yeah. a great a great. <laughs> intro. So what, what we like to do when we start here is we know a lot of our listeners are grad students who are coming okay. into the field and they may be reading the text that we all assign, you know, on, on human biology that our, our organization produces. But we want to hear the human story of how you all came to be in this field and yeah. part of the human body and all that jazz. So give us your all origin right. story. So my origin story is that I was not quite the first in my family to go to university, but pretty close. My 
father had, uh, my father did not attend the university, uh, but his uh, youngest sister did go to university to become a physical therapist. And then I guess I was the second. No, no, no. My mother's sister went to a teacher's college mm -hmm. and, and became a, a school teacher. Uh, but I was the first to go with like some, you know, more scholarly <laughs> interests. I had been interested in biology for a long time. After school, I would prefer to go back into the woods that existed at that time behind my home in Philadelphia. Uh, my parents moved from uh, within the city to the outskirts of the city in about 1955. And there were still woods on the edge then. And I would go there and I prefer to turn over rocks you know, in the stream and see what was living under there than to do anything else. So I was interested in that kind of stuff for a long time. Anyway, so I go, I get out of high school and I only applied to two universities, Penn State. I was in Philadelphia. My parents didn't know about universities. I didn't know. Uh, my, my high school uh, guidance uh, counselor said, uh, I, I mentioned something about archaeology, I think, to her. And she hmm. said, well, there's only one place you can study archaeology. That's the University of Pennsylvania. And you can't get in there. Oh, that's encouraging. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know I, I thought, well, I guess I'm too stupid. And no, it was really that, you know, Penn is selective. And they do, at that time, this is 1967, they, they probably had pretty stiff quotas for how many local high school students they took. They wanted a diverse student body. And, and my high school guidance counselor had one or two you know, students that she was pushing to get into Penn, I think. So I applied to Penn State University and to Temple University. And I, I don't even remember if I got in to Penn State. But anyway, I decided to go to Temple. It was local in Philadelphia. I could still live at home. And uh, I went there and I signed up for biology. And I loved the biology and I hated everything else in science at that time. I mean, chemistry. I never even got the physics. Calculus. Today, I use all this stuff, right? Yeah. Organic <laughs> chemistry and calculus. I do Sounds growth like a familiar curve. story. Yeah. You know, <laughs> growth velocities are the first derivative of, of, of you know, amounts of growth. Anyway, I do all this stuff, but the way it was being taught mm. was, you know, just turned me off. And my third year, first semester of my third year, junior year, I was, you know, burned out, washed up, doing very poorly. I got onto the wrong dean's list that semester. Mm. I failed a couple of things and my parents were really upset. I was really upset. I actually think I, I had a kind of breakdown, I think, because I, I had like two weeks where I was, I was like in bed and they thought I had some sort of virus, you know, mononucleosis or something. But I, I think it was actually a breakdown. So I get back to university and I go to the bookstore and I say, something's got to change. And I find a book called Anthropology A to Z, a kind of encyclopedia. Now, I don't know anything. I am, you, you can't, I'm still naive today, but I was totally naive then. The book was a translation into English of a German text by Eugen Fischer, who, depends who you ask, was, was either a Nazi collaborator or tried to resist the Nazis. But anyway, the book is full of racist, you know, stuff. But there's also primates, skeletons, mm -hmm. human growth, uh, phenotype, it, uh, somatotypes, all that sort of, it's, it's from like 1929, 1932, hmm. something like that. And it's translated 
by, uh, boy, it's downstairs. I'm not going to run downstairs to get it. But anyway, uh, I remember Ed Hunt was one of the translators. So it must have been translated by the group at Harvard. And they were all eugenicists at that time anyway. So the idea of races wouldn't have bothered them at all. But I got this book and I said, ah, I was interested in archaeology, but this stuff is more interesting, especially, you know, the monkeys. I really loved that part of the book. And I signed up in the summer between my junior and senior year for the introduction to anthropology courses that you just have to take to be able to get a major in anthropology. So I took intro, general intro to anthro, intro to archaeology and intro to physical anthropology in the summertime. <laughs> I mean, it just turned everything around. And by the end of my senior year, I had taken enough coursework and done well enough. I, had, I was shy six credit hours to be able to graduate sort of on time. One of my archaeology professors uh, was going to Ecuador, and he posted something saying, I, have, I can take one or two students with me. You just have to pay you know, your airfare, but I can support you in the field. I signed up, and I had the department administrator there were really like two secretaries in, in the department of anthropology at Temple University at that time. This was a very small department that at that time did not have PhD hmm. uh, program. And she signed off on the extra credit coursework in the summer for me to go to Ecuador. And I got my six credits. I got a publication out of it. Hmm. <laughs> the the archaeology professor was interested in what became a hot topic, you know, El Nino climate change oscillations mm. and its effect on human habitation of the coast of Ecuador. Mm. I knew nothing about any of this at the time, but I, it, the year I went was a mini El Nino year. It rained. And I wrote a little paper that was published in Central Issues of Anthropology, a student publication of the Central Anthropological Association on climate change on the coast of Ecuador and its effects on humans that summer. So that was my first real taste of anthropology. And we did some archaeology as well. Turns out there's some really old bones from that part of Ecuador that some people were about to throw away. The archaeologists who were only interested in the pots were about to throw away. I said, I'll save them. And, <laughs> and then later I got a contact. This was before email. This is this is 1971. I got contacted by somebody at the Smithsonian Institution who wanted the bones. And that's where they reside now. Oh. They're about, about 7,000-year-old bones. Hmm. So then yeah. how did you make that transition from being initially interested in archaeology and doing an archaeology field school to end well, up focusing in growth and development? Yeah. Well, when, when I finished at Temple University, then I thought about grad school and Temple was starting a PhD program, and they brought in Frank Johnston from Texas and a couple of other peoples, Henry Selby, a social anthropologist from Texas, and a couple other people to enhance their very new PhD program, and they needed bodies, and I was accepted. They asked me. They said, please apply, and then they accepted me conditionally. First, I had to do a master's thesis mm. to prove, because my total grade point average from university was not stellar. The last year and a half was great, but not the first two and a half years. So I did a master's and I did the master's on the work we did in Ecuador. And I was the first person to get a master's under the new graduate program. Everybody, you know, on staff came to my 
master's thesis presentation to see how this well that's not intimidating <laughs> yeah it was a little bit exciting uh, but they were all they, they nobody knew what was happening so everybody was quiet and they adopted a system where more or less you gave a presentation but there was no decision the decision had already been made by my committee that i was going to get a master's this was just a public presentation to show off so i wasn't under the pressure of, of you know dying after after the presentation i was the third person to get a phd from temple you know they kept they kept me on and i worked under frank johnston and later charles whites because frank johnston left temple to go to penn and actually charles whites was my uh, primary thesis advisor for my phd and uh, but by that time i had gone to guatemala and I was working on growth, not on climate change in Ecuador. But how did I get to Guatemala? It's because Frank Johnston had a connection at a brand new university in Guatemala, the University of the, Gua the Valley of Guatemala, which had grown out of the American School of Guatemala. And that American school had started a growth study in 1953. Oh, wow. And Frank was advising on that growth study. And I went down there. I did my own PhD data collection. Uh, my thesis was on seasonal variation in growth. I measured the rich kids at the American school once a month for 14 months and then looked at their changes in height and growth and weight growth rate and found they did have a, a seasonal pattern. During the sunny season, they grew faster in height than during the rainy season, which probably is due to ultraviolet radiation and vitamin D synthesis in the body. You, you've never altered your course from where you were studying as a PhD student. Yeah, uh, that got me into growth and I just stuck with it. I, there were just endless avenues. <laughs> of course, I had the esoteric questions like seasonal variation of growth, uh, sort of getting me started. But that led me to understand the social, economic, political problems of Guatemala, slowly, very slowly. Huh. And I realized that the growth study from the university was only measuring half the population of Guatemala. It was measuring the non-Maya people. And very few people were measuring any Maya. Two years after I finished my PhD, I finished in 77. In 79, I by that time, I was able to convince the people running the growth study in Guatemala to include a Maya school, a pub hmm. state public school in a village just outside Guatemala City. And uh, we collected 20 years of data at that school until the study ended in 1999. So I've been connected with that study a long time and jumping a, a little bit ahead, we had tons and tons of data. I mean, they went to, they went to between five to seven schools participated in the study over its 50 year lifetime. And they just went every year to the same schools, collected, measured all the kids who were there physical measurements and also reading tests and a kind of IQ test. So just tons of data, but all of it was on paper. Hmm. They also took hand wrist x-rays hmm. and that was available, but only as the x-ray films. And it was sitting in filing cabinets. The last time I saw the x-rays on the campus of the university in Guatemala, they were in a parking garage being exposed to all the fumes. I said, this, is gonna, this stuff's going to fall apart. I tried getting money many times from NSF, from NIH, 
talked to some private funders, nothing, nothing, nothing. So I was publishing, but I had to take the stuff, you know, go to Guatemala, type everything into a, a database by hand, take it home. So I just had, you know, samples of hundreds of students. Mm -hmm. Then out of the blue, I get contact from someone who at that time worked for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They had a priority starting in around 2015, 14, 15, to do something about height stunting. Hmm. Height, to prevent, if they could prevent height stunting, that would improve health, educational attainment, economic performance. That, that's what their purpose was. And there was nothing wrong with that purpose. The only country in the Americas that sticks out like a sore thumb in terms of stunting is Guatemala. Hmm. And that's because it's has the largest Native American population of all the Americas, and that's the Maya, more than, you know, about 6 million Maya. People don't realize they form the largest Native American population. I didn't realize that either, and that that, yeah. was, that was unique to, to Guatemala. So let's, let's jump ahead to stunting, uh, and that's not really jumping ahead. That's, <laughs> that's like the, the yeah. central thread running through your but this the set of papers that you you have out yeah. in conjunction with collaborators you have michael herman newson thank you and then christian scheffler yeah that you've been working with right right christian scheffler's at potsdam university mm. which used to be in east germany she grew up oh wow uh, under Soviet control. And now Potsdam, and Potsdam University was closed. It wasn't until after 1989, after reunification, that Potsdam University, which is a very old university, uh, was reopened. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. Uh, Potsdam is now just about the trendiest place in Germany. Uh, huh. With these folks, you decided to conduct a review of German language literature to look at height and nutrition among children from Indonesia. How did this even come about? Because right, this is right. an well, old well, set of literature. Right. Oh. Well, I, I've been, I, first I was friends with Michael Hermanusen. Michael lives almost on the Danish border in that part of Germany, you know, that sticks up into that peninsula in, in Schleswig-Holstein, Germany. He lives, uh, he's a pediatrician. So he worked as a community pediatrician in that area, in, in uh, not the village he lives in, but in a larger village. And he worked as a pediatrician, a clinical pediatrician for, I don't know how many, uh, 30 years or something like that. But he also got involved in research. First, he got involved in research, clinical research, uh, especially with some of the big pharmaceutical companies. And he worked on growth hormone therapy to give to children who are very short stature and not growing well. So Michael had an interest in, in very short stature, but first from a you know, medical perspective. And he started having what he called soirees, one day research get togethers at his home. He never had a full-time university appointment. He has some courtesy appointments at some universities, but he never wanted a full-time university appointment because he had his clinical practice. He, he read about me. He discovered me. And he invited me to come to one of his soirees. And I went. And at first I thought, these people are all crazy. <laughs> Because, because Michael is a, a very experimental thinker, but he also specifically invited lots of East Europeans. This was already after reunification. It was sometime in the 90s I went to his first, the, the first time I went to one of his research soirees. And they're at his house and he has a uh, converted farmhouse. So he, he, with lots of 
spaces. He can sleep about 15 people in his house and then some wow. would spill over to, to local bread and bed and breakfast kinds of places. And it's within sight of Baltic. It's just an ideal place to have. You can walk from his house down to the, down to the beach. Of course, That's amazing. The, the Baltic is absolutely freezing. I've never actually been full body in the Baltic. I've gone up to about my hips <laughs> and then it's too cold. But uh, it, 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 at first I thought they were crazy because the Eastern European biological anthropologists, they were isolated for so long because of the Cold War. They developed their own way of thinking about human biology, which, you know, I mean, it's perfect for an anthropologist. They're not wrong. They're just, they had their own culture and their own way of thinking and their own terminology, which, which you know, at, coming from the United States, I thought was totally foreign and weird. But it turns out they're just as smart as we are, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> or smarter. Uh, and uh, it took a couple of soirees, but I started to get into what they were doing. Many of them were very afraid to speak out about what their research meant. So they measured and measured. They had more data than I had ever seen in my life because under you know Soviet system, they could say, we're just measuring everybody and you mm -hmm. have to be measured. There was no ethical committee. Everybody got measured, huh. right? Yeah. There was no refusals. So uh, I met Christiane Scheffler. She was at that time a technician, but she had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people measured for everything, 20, 30 measurements on each person. I said, you know, this is a gold mine. And we started working on it, but they were very reluctant to turn the statistics into any kind of social, economic, or political statement because they would have been, you know, imprisoned, isolated, fired, executed in the old days. So slowly, some of the former Eastern European Soviet dependents started to think more strategically about their data. And we started to see, because they had huge amounts of data, how sensitive growth was to all of these political, economic, social changes. And in the last couple of years, we've added to the social, economic, and political, the emotional side. I call this SEPE, social, economic, political, emotional, SEPE. So SEPE factors work together synergistically, multiplicatively, and interactively to create a, I hate to use the word, a matrix of interacting, interacting variables that play out in the way children grow and develop in the way mothers experience their pregnancies and in the way embryos and fetuses are epigenetically you know marked and the way they develop but my most recent research on this has actually taken me to work with some colleagues in madrid spain who also have tons of data they have the complete birth registers every birth that took place in a hospital in spain going back to about before the economic crisis of 2007, 2008, right? So we're going back to about 2000, every birth. So we have birth weight. And you can see that as the economic crisis of 2007, 2008 is playing out, birth weight is dropping in Spain across every social economic group. Doesn't matter how rich you are, the only group that was immune to the economic crisis in terms of birth weight were university students, women at university. There's very, very few of them, number one, having babies. So it could be 
we don't have a big enough sample. But of the few hundred we have, they showed no change in birth weight, possibly because as university students, they were immune to the crisis, really. They just kept going to university. Mm-hmm. They didn't worry about their jobs, whereas everybody else was in absolute fear of either losing their jobs or having to take cuts. Spain's governmental austerity programs were some of the most severe in Europe. People had you know, pay cuts, hours cut back, benefits cut back. Everybody was stressed out. And we think that the across-the-board drop in birth weight is due to the emotional stress of the crisis. Just to pause on that thought and jump yeah. ahead to the obvious question, are we going to see this same trend right now because of the universal stress experienced in this pandemic? Yes. <laughs> I am writing I am writing a little kind of blog piece. My Spanish colleagues are Carlos Varela at the Autonomous University of Madrid, Cristina Bernice, who is a retired professor from Autonomous University, and a few others, someone who just got his PhD, Jose Manuel Terran, we're the co-authors. And I'm, right now I am writing a piece for the Virtual Museum of Human Ecology that Christina Bernice and Carlos Varela curate. Mm. So it's a kind of online museum. They always have a piece of art, and I'm going to use art that I am borrowing from a blog from India, that borrowed the art from an artist from Wuhan, China. Oh, wow. These were watercolor paintings that the artist did of people in the street in hazmat clothing, spraying everything down with disinfectant, Mm. and everybody in masks, and people uh, having their temperature taken with those forehead things. So I I, I can use at least one of those pieces of art, see if I can squeeze in two. I'll send you a copy of the of the blog when it's when it's oh, be great. Please do. So yes, my, my point is that people get stressed out by lots of things. COVID-19 is a super stress, and I would expect to see drops in birth weight in many, many places hmm. around the world. Okay, there's one study I know of that looked at changes in adult height of men in the United States whose mothers were exposed to the 1918-1919 influenza mm. pandemic. The mothers did not, were not hospitalized, but they were exposed when they were pregnant to the influenza virus of that time. The men were measured as military conscripts 20 years later. So hmm. we're talking about 1939-1940. And the men whose mothers were pregnant during that pandemic, those men are one inch shorter on average than the men who were born one year before or one year later. I find that fascinating on so many levels. One, it relates back to the kind of stuff we were talking to Sam Erlocker about the the schwar and uh, how they're they're shorter there as well. And that might be immune related. And it made me think of, you know, comparing the 1918 pandemic to the COVID pandemic today. I know the economic consequences of 1918 were real, but I feel like there's far more reaching effects of the economic consequences with this current pandemic, given the globalization of the world. Mm -hmm. And if that sort sort of stunting that you saw for just one year with the 1918 pandemic might end up extending out much further for us because of the economic stress in conjunction with the the physiological stress. Yeah, we just don't know. In the very early days of this COVID thing, I thought I was smart. So many deaths in Italy and Spain, and in the beginning, so few, like in Germany. I said, oh, well, it has to do with something about the culture of Germany or Spain. But no, it doesn't. 
because the UK mm-hmm. has just as, you know, percentage may even be higher than Italy. And the US is, you know, it's just terrible, the, the uh, percentage of people who are dying mm-hmm. in the US. I mean, so it, it has nothing to do with Southern European culture, mm-hmm. or I thought it had maybe something to do with Catholicism. Not even, you don't have to be a practicing Catholic, but just the kind of fatalism that you learn in those countries. Uh, but no, I don't think so. Uh, there, whatever COVID is doing, it's much mm-hmm. beyond my understanding. There's going to be a thousand PhDs that come out of this crisis. <laughs> yeah. At least. But, but no one's going to know what really happened for about 50 years. So let me circle back around then to the data that we do have. Yeah. So we're, we're speaking speculatively about what stress, generally speaking, may do in terms of stunting, but that almost suggests a predisposition for, for a greater height. And in a commentary that you wrote, you and your, your co-authors wrote, we consider the, ter- the term genetic growth potential a beautiful dream. There's no evidence that such potential in fact exists and can be achieved under fav- favorable circumstances. So it almost sounds like we're suggesting there's a growth potential, but but there's not. And, and then no. some of these pieces you talk about people who know they're going to be successful in life end up being taller than some of their yeah maybe ancestors maybe so can you put all that in context for us yeah let me give the context is that there is a range of human height just like there's a range of elephant body size or mouse size you don't get those giant rats in the sewers of new york city like you see in b sci-fi movies or anything like that they, they just can't grow that big because they would collapse under their own weight and people can't be much smaller or much bigger than the range which exists today and that range goes from pygmies where some women are under 140 centimeters tall men are under 150 centimeters tall you translate that into inches <laughs> uh, and and all the way up to uh, the tallest on average today are young Dutch men and women. The men are 182, 183, 184 centimeters tall. At my tallest, I was 186. That's six, one and a half. Hmm. So that gives you some idea. So there's that range. We're talking about a range of more than 30 centimeters, right? 12, 14 inches of height for the normal range for humans. Anything within that range is, is survivable. You can have make babies and raise your babies and do work and all that stuff. So that's what I mean by there's no potential. We don't have in us some gene that says we all should be five foot 10, which is the average height of men in the US. Women on average are six inches shorter than men all around the world with some variation, but about that six inches or 12 centimeters shorter than that, something like that. So all people have that possibility. If you leave the pygmies aside, the pygmies we know are short, true pygmies from Central Africa, but we have a variation that affects how growth hormone or growth hormones in their body work. And specifically, it's probably the insulin-like growth factor binding protein that carries insulin-like growth factor around the bloodstream to the tissues. They probably have less of it than, than you or I, and that's one reason they're, they're so short. Turns out if you take pygmies 
and put them on farms. They're settled down. They're no longer hunter-gatherers and give them better medical care and give them more food. They grow bigger. So it's not just genetic either. It's part of their environment. Plus, when you move them onto farms, they're living with the non-pygmy farmers who are not gigantic, but they're taller, and they're living in a different community. And they grow up, pygmy kids grow up with the kids of the taller farmers. And we, Christian Scheffler, Michael Hermanusen, and I talk about a community effect on growth. Your social network influences how many centimeters you grow. Hmm. If you're in a taller community, you tend to be taller. And we see that with migrants. When migrants migrate, they start moving in height and within a generation towards the height of the recipient population, if they are allowed to assimilate into the sure. society. The simplistic explanation for that is that getting better nourishment, and that got picked up in, in the United States by clinicians and then taken as gospel, and the rest right. of the story kind of got erased. Is that what happened? Yeah, that was what I believed also. When I did my first studies of Maya migrants from Guatemala to the United States, the kids grew, certainly the ones born in the United States, were five inches taller than their Hmm. brothers and sisters who had been born in Guatemala. Hmm. So same genetics. And I thought it was all down to more food, clean drinking water. Because when I go to Florida and Los Angeles to measure Maya, I can drink the water in Los Angeles. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Okay, it's better than Guatemala. And food is all over the place. But what I've come to understand is, yes, that's part of it. That's part of it. But taking the emotional stress of being shot, kidnapped, raped, burned alive by napalm during the Guatemalan Civil War, the government military dropped napalm on Maya villages. Mm. They practiced a, a burnt earth policy to destroy the base of the rebel forces. The Maya were not fighting the government, but non-Maya, Ladinos, they call themselves, were fighting the government. And the government responded by burning out the Maya villages so that the rebel forces or freedom fighters, whatever you want to call them, couldn't get any uh, you know, base of support. So take away that insecurity and fear and violence, and that allows kids to grow. And we know why. We know why today. Since 2018, several hormone research groups have been looking at some new hormones that are produced by bone. Calcitonin is a hormone secreted by the skeleton itself, and it needs to be secreted in order to clean out old bone cells so that you can build new bone cells. Bone repairs itself. If I break my arm, if I fall off my bicycle and break my collarbone, which I've done, it repairs itself by first cleaning out all the you know, damaged tissue and then building new bone tissue. So the first step is the cleaning out of the old. And that's what happens in growing kids. In order to grow taller, you can't just add bone everywhere on something like a, a leg bone, femur, or a tibia, or you know, a humerus, because the bone would just get wider and wider and wider. You have to remodel the bone. This has been known since the 1950s. They didn't know the mechanisms and the hormones, but now we know calcitonin washes out the old bones. It activates what are called osteoclasts, which eat up the old bone and dump that stuff into the bloodstream. And then osteoblasts secrete new bone where it's needed. 
and a bone grows longer and longer and longer, but also keeps its characteristic shape. Wow. So that, you know, I have my arm and leg bones have the same shape they had when I was five years old, but they're just longer. They've been growing more at the ends than in the middle. So that's very important. Otherwise, we would end up with, you know, like concrete pillars for legs. and We wouldn't be able to do those great athletic things that we do with our bodies. So stress, the acute stress response, right? You're crossing the street and a cement mixer truck is coming down on you. You jump out of the way. Your heart starts racing. You have an acute stress response. Insulin releases, you know, glucose into your bloodstream. Your heart rate goes up. Your blood pressure goes up. You're ready for flight or fight in an acute stress response. That's good. But what if you have that stress every day, every hour, even in your sleep, you have that stress from poverty, from food insecurity, not from lack of food, but you just don't know what you're, when you're going to get food the next time from violence. You live in a violent neighborhood. I first learned about this as a kid when my family had a small supermarket in Philadelphia, a mom and pop kind of place. And the neighborhood changed from a kind of lower class, working class white neighborhood to an African-American neighborhood. But when I was a little kid, I would play with other kids on the street in, in the neighborhood. And one weekend I invited home one of the African-American kids that I was friendly with in the neighborhood. And he came to our house in the edge of Philadelphia, still in the city, but in a more suburban area. And the next morning he said, I can't believe it. He's, I said, what do you mean you can't believe it? He said, I can't believe how quiet it is here. I could sleep through the night. Hmm. What he was telling me was where he lives, there's gunshots, there's yelling, there's automobile noise, and there's violence in the household when various people come in and out of the household. I learned that later. Well, the kids in Guatemala live with that violence all the time, the Maya kids and the poor Ladino kids. And the rich in Guatemala live with that violence all the time and insecurity. You never know what's going to happen next. Always have to be vigilant, even the rich. So when they come to the U.S., those Maya kids, that is as big a relief for them as the availability of clean drinking water and, and you know, and fast food. And they grow faster and bigger and also fatter than ever. Why? Okay, that calcitonin that is needed for normal bone growth when you are chronically stressed, that calcitonin is being produced and secreted constantly. And what that does is it stops bone growth. You never get past the clean out the old bone to deposit new bone stage. But it also, because it gets released into the bloodstream, it also results in taking all the energy that's in the body that isn't used for physical activity and immune response and that stuff. It's not being used for growth, that energy, because the bones aren't growing. It dumps it into the fat cells. So the kids are shorter. They stop growing or they grow very slowly and they get fatter. That's hmm. exactly what we saw in, in Florida and in California. The kids were four to five inches taller on average across the ages of five to 12 years of age, but they were 12 pounds heavier. Wow. And their average weight was borderlining on obese for kids in the United States. Their average weight. They this were at the 85th percentile. How much would you expect them to weigh more given the additional, you know, four to six inches of height? Like with that scaling up that they're taller, how much more weight would you expect? But are they oh, 12 pounds heavier question. than your expect expectation? Oh, definitely heavier than expectations. Yeah, okay. because they got up to the 85th percentile. Mm, okay. But they were only at the 25th percentile for height. 
Okay. Right? So they're mm -hmm. only up to three quarters of the kids in the US, white and black kids, are taller than they are, but they're heavier than 85% of okay. those kids. Mm -hmm. So it's way out of kilter. So they, okay. you know, they definitely have, we measured their arm circumference and skin folds. We know that it's fat. And we also measured, the second time I went to uh, measure the kids in Florida, we also measured their body proportions. And we found that out of the four to five inches, like four inches was leg length. Hmm. In other words, they, were, they had changed body proportions, which when I was a student, when I was Frank Johnston's student, the textbooks I was assigned to read said the body proportions were genetic. They don't change. Well, guess what? They change. So, so that's a beautiful place for us to put. One, because you yeah. just told us a great story with the beginning and an ending because our internet's getting unstable. And three, because <laughs> we're talking to you for the next 17 hours because there's know, so many I threads. I could go on forever. We can just bring you back well, on the show for another episode. That's <laughs> exactly right. You'll okay. probably, that next block, piece comes out or, or something else, it gives us an excuse to, to refresh our conversation and dig down even more. So let's do this. Ask at the end is what, what folks are doing or what they're reading or how they can get a hold of you. But let me ask you a different question. What is the next article that's coming out that we can have you back on and then just continue the conversation? Well, the third edition of my book, Patterns of Human Growth, is in production with Cambridge University Press. And they say it's going to be out in November. Awesome. I have the cover image, which I'm going to send to you. Oh, thanks, Barry. And uh, that discussion about social, economic, political, emotional factors is a theme that runs throughout the book. It shows up in the introduction chapter, and especially the last two chapters get into it in the detail that I'm getting into it with you. We would love this. We, we've brought on a number of people to discuss their new books. So I think that would be a great thing. And we might even get you to do a, a short snippet reading from that book as well to include at the podcast. Excellent. Lovely. Well, right. We do like to end with uh, how can folks get in touch with you on various social media, email or website if you are open to sharing? Yeah, yeah. It, my email is very easy to find. The first thing that pops up, if you put my name in Google, will be my Loughborough email address which you have and anybody can email me wonderful well barry this has been yeah. fascinating yeah. and i mean we were both pleasure. so excited to have you on the show because again we've I'm been excited. meeting you for years so i'm excited yeah yeah all right thank you so much again we are definitely going to bring you back on and stay safe and healthy you too this has been the sausage of science with chris and kara and i'm one of the associate producers caroline owens this episode was made possible by the support of the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. Be sure to check out the American Journal of Human Biology special issue on water insecurity. Please like us, rate us, share us, and let us know who you'd like to hear next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>